Welcome to this week's episode of Watch No Evil. This is Zach. And this is Matt. And today we'll be talking about the 1976 film adaptation of Stephen King's Carrie with a special guest today, Matt Pepler. Matt Pepler is a horror artist and podcaster from the Post Credits podcast. Hi, Matt. Welcome. Hello. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you. Thanks for agreeing to be on here. So, first of all, we always like to we always like to wonder about our guests. How is it that you got into horror, like as a kid or later on in life or? Oh, no, it was really young, like really <laughs> very young. It was actually like from my dad. Whenever he wanted to watch a movie, it wasn't like, what am I going to be able to watch with my kids around? It's like, no, we're just going to watch the movie I want to watch. So that included Alien, Die Hard at like a very young age. So, I mean, I saw Alien when I was seven. So I ended up, I became like a bigger fan because, you know, I'm, I'm going to date myself but there was an internet when I was finding out about movies. So uh, it was a lot of like reading and understanding the background. Yeah, just being in a library looking at books. <laughs> so that's how I became a fan of it. Which is very topical to our subject today, right? <laughs> right, Starting right. with the books. And, you know, it's always interesting to see what people kind of say when they're talking about getting into the horror genre because so many people come to it through film and really come to mm -hmm. love it through film and the visual media of horror. I don't think that we've run across somebody yet who's been like, oh, I started reading like scary books. Like I, I did read a lot of Stephen King and a lot of, a lot of that stuff growing up. It was more uh, along the lines of like the special effects, how they, they pulled off the sleight of hand, stuff like that. That's what I was really fascinated with. Hmm. Interesting. So who's your who's your like go to special effects person? Well, I mean, it's the staples. I mean, there's a clear lineage between like, you know, what Romero did with Night of the Living Dead to now Walking Dead. I mean, and it's not just because it's zombies, but I mean, you had Tom Savini working with George Romero and then he brings in Greg Nicotero, oh, Greg yeah. Nicotero then later brings together K and B effects. And then the huge amount of work that K and B effects did after that is incredible. Like there would not be horror that we see today. It's almost like the Beatles. Uh, we wouldn't see rock and roll like the same way it is because of the Beatles. If they weren't here, we wouldn't see that. And it's the same thing with what George Romero did, starting with Night of the Living Dead to ending with Greg Nicotero being the executive producer of The Walking Dead. You know, that's incredible to see this clear line through history of why things are the way they are when it can be narrowed down to just a handful of people is insane for sure well, it's, it's just funny how like horror started being such a neat niche kind of thing right and then now it's yeah. proliferated into we have subgenres of of horror it's yeah it's more popular now than it ever has been i've said it before i'll say it again if you think about like the subgenre thing that's a really interesting point because there's only like one other genre that kind of has subgenres, and that's comedy. That's it's really interesting to hear a special effects forward approach, especially because I don't I don't necessarily think that we've had that before. But I'd be interested to get your take then on sort of the movement I think that we're having lately of going back into like practical effects a lot. Because my dad, when I was growing up, was obsessed with like the Ray Harryhausen 
puppeteering mm-hmm. in the stop motion of the old, old like monster movies like The Claw and the original King Kong where they had to do everything practically, which carried into, you know, John Carpenter's The Thing and Raybot and doing all of the stuff with that. And then we had like the, you know, the digital age, but it feels like part of the current tapestry of horror, there's sort of a, a love letter being rewritten to the practical effects artists. And I mean, I think it should have been done a long time ago. Harold Ramis. He was talking about the shift from practical to CGI and the huge shift between Ghostbusters 1 and 2. And he said, like, everyone compared it to it being a slow dissolve that as computer graphics got better, CGI got better, that you would see this slow, like, fade out of practical effects. And then, like any industry, when a new technology comes out, that then, you know, CGI would take over. And he said it was like a smash cut instead of a slow dissolve. And I think that was problematic for many years even if you go back and look at lord of the rings or avatar even now those look dated you can still tell that it's too shiny and that creates a lot of problems not to reiterate the same word but practical effects are practical you know uh they are cheaper to do than cgi now and there's less corrections that you have to do other than lighting when you're on set so i think it is better to go back or at the very least have a combination of them It's really weird. There's been instances in movie making where they made it practical and then went back and just said, we want it all CGI when they already had it. Mm -hmm. That happened in The Hobbit, which is now become a huge problem because people see all the problems and areas where the CGI was lacking because it wasn't where it needed to be then. And then the thing prequel, all the monsters were done with practical effects. And then Universal stepped in and said, hey, no, make them all digital. And there's like test footage of all that stuff. And it looks incredible. It looks more like the John Carpenter's the thing than it does what they made. When you know something's fake because it was made by a computer, well, then your suspension of disbelief is snap. You know it's not real and it's less scary. Mm-hmm. I prefer at the very least to be a combination or a hybrid, if not full on practical effects. I think we're all in agreement when it comes to practical effects being superior. You know, Matt and I recently watched Mad God. I don't know if you've seen that one. I couldn't. I got 20 minutes in and I couldn't do it. Uh, it's gross. It's just too gross. <laughs> It is. It's definitely that's a, that's a good word for it. And I, no one in the, involved in the making of the movie would be offended by that description. <laughs> right. But that to me, it's the ultimate example of the, it's all practical. It's all mm-hmm. tangible. It just feels so much more immersive and not just because he's this whole world has been created, but it's just something about the quality of it. It's like those degrees of separation because I have the same thing about the Thing movies because that's that's always my go-to and that's like what I fall back on. And there's just such like a moistness and a reality to the original Thing designs. And then in the prequel movie 2011, it was just like the sort of realness and the charm of them is pushed further away because you know that they're created in that way and in making them uh, CGI, there's there's like a, a an extravagance to them that misses the plot, misses the point of what the creatures sort of represent. I think that that's something that kind of comes up in a lot of these films, especially. They're a little extravagant. So I guess we'll get more into this film. I was wondering, like, what, what is your experience with specifically the 1976 Carrie film? Oh, I mean, I, I read the book shortly after I saw the movie, but I think I was pretty young as well. I mean, I remember seeing it before I was driving, so that's 
probably around like 94, 95, somewhere around there. It's interesting because it's highly regarded as like a great horror movie. And I agree that it is. But I also feel like it shouldn't be as popular as it is. Just because it is a, it is a depressing movie when you like I, I, like when you look at how the behavior of everybody in the movie except Carrie yeah. who is a product of her psychotic mother but everyone else doesn't have that influence of Carrie's mother but they act way worse than Carrie's mother <laughs> these people are horrible and it, I hate to see PJ Souls in a character like this uh, same with Nancy Allen <laughs> they're horrible people I always talk about characters as if they're real people so like if I if I met these people I would have problems with all of them you know so I remember with this movie I did read the book first and with the book Carrie seems so much more decentralized and it feels like a cautionary tale for Sue Snell specifically like everything that happens in the book kind of happens to like teach her to be a better person she's the only one that actually survives the whole incident, which is still represented in the film, of course. And one of the big things about this movie and its portrayal of women specifically is it's showing you like the different levels of maturity with Sissy Spacek being sort of the, the most immature. Whereas at the end of the book, Sue Snell is pregnant and she has Tommy Ross's child. And that's supposed to be like, she's changed and she views the world differently now and is trying to change how people are for her own child. It's interesting then to see Carrie in this film be super, super centralized where the role of Sue Snell is so decentralized. I'll be honest, I have not read the book. Yeah, like I've seen this movie before. It is interesting to hear that in the book, Carrie is not the main character. Like the damn book is named after her. And But now that you're saying that like, okay, it's more from Sue's perspective and Carrie is kind of presented as the, the entity of interest, really. That makes a lot more sense story-wise. The thing I also remember about the book is it's much more of like a news report than it is like mm -hmm. a, a book, you know, like a novel, because it goes like through the timeline of events that happen over the night. I, I like it and I don't at the same time, because when you're at a news report, I mean, the news that we have now, we're so desensitized to like what's happening. It's, everything's news, right? It's just like, uh, I mean, well, it's not news. It's like there's war going on, you know, like, yeah. um, so when I started reading it, I, I immediately felt distance from it instead of like, you know, reliving this story. It's a little odd choice. It's definitely like one of my least favorite King books. But yeah, it's, I don't know, compared to the movie, uh, like as far as the stories, I prefer the movie over the book. I think the viewpoint should have shifted to Carrie. I think it's more poignant that way. I think the, the book also benefited from the fact that it wasn't going to have to deal with any type of overt or major censorship. And because of that, the book is way more graphic in its descriptions mm -hmm. of what's happening and its portrayal of everyone in the town being just awful the depictions of of sexuality in the book are a lot more overt, especially when dealing with uh sue snell but then the depictions of chris who gets her boyfriend who's uh, of course played by john travolta uh billy nolan to kill the pig like the whole pig scene in the book is so 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 graphic and it plays such a central part to the narrative of the book because it's like the first thing that really happens in the book that just like stops the forward motion dead. 
And in this, I was just like, I was waiting because when they get to that scene, I'm like expecting it to be worse. And then it it's bad, but it's just kind of glossed over. It's not that bad. It's not that bad. And I was just like, oh, yeah, it's not horrifying. <laughs> it does kind of make sense that a lot of, of the discussion around this, I guess, in like a purity politics sort of theme how everything is is depicted and how everything is shown with this certain the switch between intimacy and detachment intimacy when we see sissy spacek as carrie white every everything that we see with her is very intimate it's very up close when she's locked in the cupboard and she's praying to jesus um or even in the shower scene at the beginning or when it's doing that close-up uh on her face right before the bucket of blood falls it's so so intimate and you really feel for her and then with every other character it feels so detached like it's showing them from afar and we're supposed to feel what Carrie White is feeling, but we are supposed to watch what everybody else is doing. And the only time that that kind of flips is when we get that really long close up of Sue Snell and Miss Collins, like right at the end when tragedy's about to strike. But by then we also know that like, oh, their intentions were pure all along. Mm-hmm. They build that up right from like the very beginning of the movie. It starts with the gym class volleyball game or whatever and it's basically just everyone shitting on carrie and how she's gonna mess it up and then you know the whole shower scene and it's just you get this impression immediately that it's carrie versus the world but it's just because of clicks and popularity Mm -hmm. you know and i that's probably why like one of the the main reasons why this movie's popular is there's a lot of people that can identify with being an outcast in school you know you know, she is the outcast. We get that very clearly at the beginning, but we also get a lot of innocence surrounding her character. Her last name is White. She wears a lot of white. She doesn't know what a period is. She thinks she's dying when she has it at the beginning. and Which like, would be terrifying if you didn't know. Right? Right? <laughs> if you didn't know, and then this physiology happens, which is normal, how would you not think you're disintegrating from your insides out? But then it's like any normal person views that scene like, man, that's terrible because they they did a really good job of setting up why she's terrified. But then it's immediately washed over by how her classmates react to her reaction. And her mom and how her mom reacts. That's even worse, honestly. (laughs) You think of the mother as being like, you know, the mother of the daughter who has just experienced her first period is like, you think of that as being like a comforting kind of presence, right? And instead, it's treated quite the opposite. Like suddenly, Carrie, like she's become a woman. She says that part, but now she has to carry the burden of all the sins of women. She reads that that passage from the Bible to, at her yeah. and makes her repeat it after her very, in a very abusive kind of way, where we know Carrie has not done anything wrong. <laughs> it's just a natural thing. And that really beats into us like the shamefulness that is surrounded by menstruation, especially when it comes to teenagers. And that's so central to just the the themes of womanhood in this film. The mother is it is played, I think, with a real degree of evil as the antagonist of the film. And I know that Chris uh, and Billy are also antagonists, they're significant antagonists, and Carrie White is not a hero obviously for the film 
the way that the mother is played, it, it just represents that kind of like particular kind of evil that is both very close to home, but also very far reaching. And while I don't necessarily think that people watching this are going to as- assume that that's how religion is in this situation, the use of the justification of religion by Carrie's mother is it augments how wicked she actually is. I don't really view her as that. Like, she does terrible things, but she's also indoctrinated. Mm-hmm. And, like, can you levy that against someone who's indoctrinated to believe a certain way? Because Carrie was brought up to believe these things that her mother has taught her. It's easy to say then to go a step further that Carrie's mother was also taught these things. So it's like where she's getting these things is the, the evil, you know, not necessarily like the mom. I don't consider the mom evil, even though she's a terrible person. But does she know she's a terrible person? And I think that's that's the distinction that I would say makes someone evil, is the knowledge of what they're doing is evil, and then them continuing to do right. it. That's why that scene at the end where the mother has that whole breakdown about knowing Carrie was conceived during, like, drunk lovemaking, where... Which, which right. she claimed, like the mother says, that she enjoyed it. That, and so then her treatment towards Carrie kind of becomes a, a representation of her punishing herself and her own perceived, like, shamefulness. And that's why I, I kind, I don't know. I think that it's it's hard for me to divorce the the feeling of the mother putting forward all of this. And she says throughout that whole interaction that she knew from the beginning that Carrie was, you know, a product of sin and that she should have sent her to heaven when she was a child. And then there tries to murder her. It's one of those things where does the mom know what Carrie did at that point? Besides Carrie saying to her mother, they all laughed at me. Uh, I don't think that the mom knows what the extent of what Carrie did. But I think that her, that the mother knows that Carrie has special abilities. Yeah. You know, she um, does come home covered in blood. Right. Does the mother see her when she comes home covered in blood? Yeah. Like the only time that, like, their next interaction is uh, after Carrie is in the shower and she's clean. And then she's like putting on her nightgown and then she appears behind the door. And then she she tries. (laughs) Yeah. And then the mother tries to, to stab her to death, knowing that Carrie had done the thing of killing all of these other many of whom we assume to be innocent kids, but obviously many of whom were not innocent people. That to me is, is totally get it justified uh, from the mother's perspective. But if she doesn't know, I just, I wonder where the prompting is. And I wonder where the prompting of telling Carrie about her conception and why she views Carrie this way as just a cruelty just like an extra added oh there, yeah there is there is cruelty like being indoctrinated doesn't excuse any type of cruelty you know i just want to point that out it's not a, a scapegoat to be like oh i'm sorry i'm sorry i destroyed you i just i just believe this religious thing you know sorry i stabbed oh. you <laughs> <laughs> right right um i'm just saying it, it's a warped perspective i got into a, an argument with a friend once they were basically saying like logic is everything and you can figure out most problems just through logic. Well, my counter is, well, if someone's logic is skewed, then 
those decisions based on their failed logic is also going to be illogical. You know, uh, it's one of those things where it's like, depending on the person's outcome or outlook, they could classify something as evil or not, depending on their background. So it becomes extremely subjective. Like, I don't think uh, Carrie's mom's a good person <laughs> at all. And I think if someone said she was a good mother after seeing this movie, you'd be like, I think you have a problem. You know, <laughs> why would you say that? But uh, as everything that Carrie's mom doing, because she hates Carrie and then, you know, because of having Carrie out of wedlock and not being married, or is it just like that's part of her upbringing? Or is it that she hates Carrie because she has these special powers? There's a lot of gray area in there. But yeah, I, I don't know. I think beating your kid uh, is not good under Hot any take. circumstance. <laughs> you know? so. Yeah, I, I just find the mother to, to be a really interesting character study to try and figure out what she represents and who she is and what role she ultimately plays in the film. I too wonder if the whole reason that she hates Carrie is that perhaps the pregnancy was the thing that drove the man that she loved away. Sure. And so then she's resentful of Carrie for having lost someone that she could have seen herself with. But even then, she was fully acknowledging that the that their relationship was not biblical. I think in, in relation to the mother's character, she probably thinks that she's the hero in this story. I mean, let's let's put it this way. Let's pretend this is the synopsis of the movie now. A mother, a devout Christian woman, discovers that her daughter who has just reached the, the pinnacle of womanhood, has developed satanic powers. <laughs> and she goes to save the world from this, this satanic being. And if you look at it from that perspective, Carrie's, Carrie's the villain. Mm -hmm. Let's say Carrie hadn't died at the end and continued this like uncontrolled telekinetic rampage. Like This is this, the, the story of like the birth of a supervillain. Traumatic childhood and then like a traumatic formative experience that is the bucket of blood at the prom. I think that's why we end up with the mother being crucified and in the exact position of that Jesus idol in the closet that we get. Either that or it's a bastardization of <laughs> that, you know, you're the one preaching this religion the whole time. Here, let's crucify you. And it's kind of like a haha. This is what you get. Yeah, that's the problem. I guess that's the main problem I have with this movie is that it's extremely hard to relate to anyone's side. Yeah, because I, I think everyone's in the wrong depend with their perspective. Like, I mean, we, we talked about that before. Carrie's mom is bad. Carrie herself, even though she's ignorant to the world, still massacres the prom. <laughs> you know, like the whole all of it. <laughs> like. I don't know. I mean, the group definitely, I could understand, like, you know, Nancy Allen, PJ Souls, those characters, John Travolta. The only one that was any good was the one that got knocked out from the uh, pail, you know, on stage. <laughs> yeah. Like, what? Uh, what's his um, name? Uh, but from House. Yeah. And um, I don't know. It's like they none of them do good things. They're just that one you know, and he got taken out of the movie by an accident. So it's, yeah, it's extremely difficult to be like, yeah, I, I like this movie because of this character. I'm like, you're all bad. You're all bad news. That's why I think 
it shouldn't be as popular as it is. There's not that one person you can get behind or group of people that's like, that represents the best ideals. It's got a, a touch of realism in there because mm-hmm. as a whole, I feel teenagers are terrible, terrible people. Oh my God. If you're different at all in high school, it's the worst. Yeah, and it is a product of, you know, clicks and popularity contests and all that's like what you said uh, at the beginning. And that's what this movie does a really good job with handling is those feelings of alienation. It's not just Carrie who's dealing with it, but it's also her mother, right? She goes in mm-hmm. and she's trying to like preach to Mrs. Snell and that's not going super well. And she's just like, here, right. here's 10 bucks. Get out of my house. I think it does a good job of capturing that feeling of alienation. Uh, in those two characters specifically in in this world of what seem like really terrible unaccepting people aside from the gym teacher (laughs) yeah miss collins who who acts much more like a mother in the movie than any other character that we see and especially acts more like a mother than carrie's own mother does slaps the shit yeah except for the (laughs) slap the slapping everyone is a little a little far She does slap a lot of people in that movie. Well, speaking of violence and speaking of Miss Collins, it's it's so interesting to me. I don't know what it, it is like in the book, but that she's like the most empathetic character towards Carrie. And she gets killed like the hardest in that prom scene. And it's just, I wonder what the what that decision was like. Does she die in the book? Does she, does she die anything like this in the book? Yeah, it's just as brutal in, in the book, which I find. It, I mean, it, it does seem like in the movie, it seems like it's just like something that happens in all the chaos rather than Carrie being like, I'm going to control this basketball hoop to, you know, like she did with the fire hose. That was, it's something I do want to mention since we were talking about that chaotic scene is there's a lot of foreshadowing in this movie that I think is interesting and plays into the writing and the cinematography. I brought up the fire hose and that just the way that we had a close-up shot of like the showerhead faucet, spigot, whatever you want to call it, in the very beginning of the movie is very parallel to how we are shown the fire hose uh, at the end. It's like even the angle that the water is like coming Mm -hmm. out at is almost exactly the same, which is Super cool. And then also, like, to go back to the shower scene, we get the blood dripping down Carrie's leg, right? Which is foreshadowing the blood dripping down from the ceiling from the bucket. It's the most important moment in the book and the movie, right, is when the blood drops. I think it's symbolic of the menstruation and just, like, the whole becoming a woman thing. Do you, what, do you, what do you guys think when it comes to that? Yeah, I agree. I, I think that it, it does have something to do because... Carrie's being ostracized at a really important juncture in her life. Mm-hmm. She represents sort of the youngest of the women, even though she is technically the same age as Sue Snell. But Sue Snell has a boyfriend. We see the other teenagers ha- having sex or doing sexual things in the film. So there's a, a degree of sexual maturity there. And then we have like a mother figure, which I consider to be Miss Collins, who is the, the worldly and the knowledgeable. And then you have the mother of Carrie, Margaret White, who is talking about the evils of doing all of these things and of sexual maturity and so for me i I do think that the whole thing is kind of that is that metaphor of the dangers and of sexuality in general i do think that that has at least a little bit of it even when it's not a point of contention or a, a point of argument and that's why i also think that that moment happens 
at the same time that she's kissed by Tommy. Because it's one marker, and then the kiss with Tommy is like, that's the next mark. With the whole thing, it seemed like Tommy was into it. That he he had changed from someone who was kind of on the fence. And it seemed like throughout prom, before the bucket, that like he was happy to do it. It's for Carrie a reminder of what happened already. At the beginning of the movie, no, clearly no one accepts her, right? Uh, and so when it happens at the beginning of the movie, every, everybody is, is quick to, to pile on her um, and, you know, throw things at her in the shower. And then when the blood falls at this point, before it happens, she's feeling accepted by everyone. And yes. everyone's like, oh, yay, Carrie White, let's everybody applauds. And it's totally fine. But the blood falls and then everyone in that auditorium reverts back to how they were before the story had started their treatment of her oh yeah immediately collapses again now that's something that i wanted to talk about is are they actually laughing at her or is that all in her mind i think it's half and half i think that like her mind her because of what she's already been through is thinking that she laughed at the, or people are laughing at her mm -hmm. because that's also what her mother said. And right. it, I mean, you have the sound clip in the movie during this moment, but when you see the crowd, the only people that are laughing are the people in the shower, you right. know? And then when shit goes haywire, it's the people that aren't laughing that are like, let's get the hell out of here. So I think it's half and half. I think the people that we don't like who are, are aren't good people uh they were the ones laughing because they were all in on the joke and they saw it to its fruition where everyone else was revolted mm -hmm. that someone would think to do this that it would be funny to me it's yeah of course it's like the people who staged the whole thing like they're trying to to get everyone else to laugh but to me i do feel like it's really just functions as like it's affirming her her worst fears of like yeah. hey i'm finally becoming accepted and then okay my worst fear now is you know the higher the climb the the longer the fall and that's what we experience here there also is during that we don't get the actual sound of them laughing for a while we get like this silent pointing and like you get the mouths like yeah moving you like hear the laughing. rope the rope like creaking right with the bucket which is you know i think a super cool cinematic choice and then after oh, yeah. all that and so all this like slowed down stuff we get chris and billy like climbing out from under the stage and kind of like making their getaway but during that they're talking and there's no laughing going on in the background right so that's me as like this is all in her head or well not all of it but you know what i mean <laughs> that's a good point i didn't think that it could just have been all in her head but it does make sense that like it is that's that is definitely affirming of exactly what she had always been taught and when you're looking for the worst in people you'll see it mm -hmm. in that kind of way and i think that that's you know that's something that her mother taught her as well to like look for the worst in people nobody's intentions are pure tommy's intentions etc well this is something that i feel like we're just hardwired to yeah. do you know is to seek out all the negativity that we possibly can we don't even know that we're doing it like i don't i don't particularly go through comments you know like on social media just because it's like well all right man <laughs> like 
it's just but like you will find one negative comment in a sea of a thousand positive comments right but you will remember that negative one for the rest of your life but you will not remember the other 999 people that were like giving you an accolade or a compliment or something now imagine having that in front of a small town of you know now your peers i can't even comprehend the rage i would feel in that same position so and i mean we we were kind of like led to led with carrie to believe like this is all going to be a joke because like why why is tommy this this guy that you know we know she kind of has a thing for her. she liked his poem and all that stuff right why is he asking her to prom when he is a thing with sue like we're already suspicious yes. of that. carrie is suspicious of, of that miss collins even says to sue and tommy carrie's not stupid and neither are we like we know there's something going on and they they were legitimately just trying to like socialize her um, yes we find yeah. out in the end but it just is like is a bit of a collateral kind of thing <laughs> that happens. Right. And, you know, it's, it's again, affirming her suspicions and like her worst nightmare. <laughs> it's just, okay, I thought people were bad and she's going through the night. Yeah, maybe people aren't bad. Maybe I like people. And then boom, nope, everything my mom ever said was correct. And the world is a much shittier place than I thought it ever could be. Uh, there's not really any room for Carrie to grow or go after these events, you know, because even, okay, so say it just ended with her getting blood poured on her, right? And that's all that happened. She's still going to be ostracized in the community, even though she's a victim of basically a hate crime, right? <laughs> that's not where it ended. She killed everybody. <laughs> so now it's like, well, uh, what they did was horrible, but you're also just as horrible because did they deserve to die? Well, I don't, I don't think so, but what they did is pretty terrible. And then, like, her her mother wants to kill her. Where can she go? <laughs> like, this is, this is Straight crazy. to hell, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she takes the house with her. The house just implodes and sinks down to hell. Yeah. <laughs> and the ending, the house sinking, I like got it. But when it showed the like pit of the house, I was like, this seems strange. Yeah. Also small for how large this house was earlier. So well, was, I, right. think, I think that was just an excuse to have like the first sale sign in the shape of a cross at the end. Just be like, hey, po poetic. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. I'm good with wrapping it there. If any of you, yeah, would you be able to plug some of the things that you do? We'd like to invite you to talk about your work or where people could find you. Yeah, I mean, you can find uh, what I do, which is like alternative movie posters, fictional travel posters, stuff like that. Uh, that can be on, found on my website, mpepler.com, and then social media. It's all branded the same, mm -hmm. So, but it's just Matt Pepler everywhere. So, And information on my own podcast uh, is all found on my website. So, yeah. And then I also travel a lot. So if you go to Comic-Cons in the Midwest or horror conventions, I'm probably there set up as a vendor. So either in Artist Alley or wherever. 
but yeah nice. so like last weekend i was just at cincinnati comic expo so thank you everyone for listening to this week's episode of watch new evil this is matt and this is zach and matt pepler and remember folks sometimes mother doesn't always know best Zach and Matt are two veteran horror movie enthusiasts discussing their favorite and not-so-favorite horror films. Scary movie fans, beware, or listen to Watch No Evil. News, reviews, and deep dives of the television series and film franchises you love. Take a tour of the popular media world with Biggs and Brandon on Not Safe for Network. Charles is a Purple Heart recipient and cinematographer. Aaron is a professor and critical cultural scholar. Together, they explore the narrative, affective, and production politics of war cinema on The Real War Project. That's R-E-E-L War Project. You can find all of these shows wherever you find your podcasts. You can find all of these shows on Redwood Sound Labs.